listening to ACDC Beyond the Thunder, the podcast with the biggest balls of all, with your hosts, Kurt Squires and Greg Ferguson. It's time to rock. Welcome to the podcast with the biggest balls of all. It's ACDC Beyond the Thunder. I'm your host, Kurt Squires, who, along with my good friend Greg Ferguson, have traveled the earth to seek out the most extraordinary ACDC stories to be told in our never-ending search to find out just how this band has influenced so many extraordinary individuals along the way. And that's our trusty audio engineer over there, Eric Kielb, in the sound booth. And speaking of sound, our next guest does in fact sport a golden pair of ears. A man who's amassed nearly 300 productions to his resume and counting. With such bands as, check this out listeners, The Cult, Metallica, Dio, Corrosion of Conformity, Joe Satriani, Slipknot, Whitesnake, Van Halen, Motley Crue, Elvis Costello, Chickenfoot, Nora Jones, and the list goes on. But most importantly for this episode, every single ACDC release since 1990. That's right, we give you from his hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia, the sixth member of ACDC, Mike Frazier. Welcome, Mike. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We thought we'd start out the show with your title. Your current title is record producer, engineer, and mixer. We were wondering if you could briefly define in layman's terms each of those job titles. Start with producer, because that'll kind of go down the chain a bit. Okay. Uh, the producer is kind of the captain of the ship. Um, he sort of liaisons more closely with the band about song choices, uh, arrangements, writing of the songs. Um, and some producers uh, actually help and co-write on uh, on some of the projects. But he's he's the overseer and the captain of the ship. The engineer is sort of the the technician that that runs all the gear, you know, sets the microphone, creates the sounds, um, and you know he does all kind of all the work. And then the mixer is the final stage once everything's all recorded on multi tracks. You know, you got your bass, drums, guitars vocals are all in separate tracks yep. uh, a mixer goes and blends that on to the final product that you that you hear and uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell if, if that's the case can you please remix fly on the wall for us <laughs> sure <laughs> i'm begging yeah. you man I've, i actually like that album but it needs a yeah. serious remix i've heard that a lot and you know uh, other than you know when i listened to it when i came out in the day i can't ever think that i've listened to that in quite a while so i'll have to go back and check it out (laughs) okay and i i wanted to also bring up mastering i actually worked with bob ludwig once on an advertising project who as you know is a famous mastering guy Um, yeah and in his studio i saw for those about to rock lp framed on his wall and i'm like why do you have that and he said well i mastered that album and i said you're kidding me what does mastering mean And he basically, he gave the coolest explanation. He said, let's say you shoot a roll of film. Are you going to bring it to Walmart at the one-hour photo mat? Or are you going to send it away to a professional lab and get all those deep, rich colors out of it? And then I got it. Yeah, I thought, wow. So you agree with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. They they kind of put the final sheen on things. And, And for me, I think the biggest thing, uh, they do is because, you know, me, me and the band, the producer work hard to get the sound and everything we want. But, you know, when you're mixing like 10 or 11 songs, it takes about a day, a song to mix, sometimes a little more. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the overall, the songs, when they put together on a whole record, won't match level wise or one song might be a little more uh, brighter EQ on and one's, you know, a little fatter. Right. So a mastered engineer smooths that all out so it's a, a continuous kind of sound and, and level you know so it's like a final color correction for a movie even yeah exactly yeah, yeah. okay yeah. cool 
Well, let's go back to your roots. You Were you born in Canada? Yeah, born and raised uh, here in the lower mainland. I actually live uh, about an hour outside of Vancouver in a place called Langley, which used to be um, all farmland. And, okay. you know, the last uh, 50, 60 years, it's all kind of been developed. And uh, But I grew up on a farm uh, okay. out here, and I've kind of never moved away. <laughs> and you grew up with this... Um love for music you even had your own garage band you said at one point and but you knew you were never going to be the next jimmy page uh, <laughs> no <laughs> although maybe you could produce jimmy page one day yeah bizarre wasn't it <laughs> uh, unbelievable yeah, well i knew pretty quick i wasn't going to make any money playing guitar because i could just barely sort of hold a chord so uh yeah uh when i had the opportunity to jump into a studio uh i jumped for it and you, you decided to drop out of school at age 15 or so? Yeah, it was around 15 or something. And uh, I drove heavy equipment and logging trucks with my dad. He had a kind of a, a small logging outfit, uh, um, you know, excavating kind of outfit. So I, I did that for a couple of years. And then I got bored of being laid off in the winter because, uh, you know, it was either too muddy or too snowy or something to work. Um, right. So I thought, ah, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And I thought, well, I like music. So called up a few studios in town, and uh, one of them needed a, a janitor. They didn't have any positions, but a janitor. So I thought I'll jump at that and get my foot in the door. That's amazing. And and was that a big deal for you to drop out of school um, for your family? No, not really. I mean, you know, my mom was probably disappointed, but... Uh, you know, school wasn't for me. Like I was just getting A's and B's, but you know, I just, just didn't get on with my teachers. So I'd yeah. skip classes and then I'd fail because I was skipping classes. And I just thought, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> so, <laughs> I remember I my kids at that age, you know, they're hemming and hawing about school and they're, you know, I'm as a parent, you're like, come on, stay the course. This is what you do. And then one of my kids said, yeah, but dad, no one from ACDC graduated high school and they're your heroes. <laughs> I was like, oh, shut me right down, didn't you? Yeah. Well, we've got four kids and, uh, and you know, that discussion popped up quite a lot. Well, dad didn't finish school. Dad quit school. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but don't do what dad did. <laughs> right. So you're, you're at this place called Little Mountain Studios working as a custodial supervisor. And right. you're cleaning toilets by day, but then you're learning engineering at night. Did you, you must have like literally been sleeping there. Well, I was because I'd start my janitor stuff at 5 a.m. And then uh, at that time, Little Mountain was primary. Uh, they did uh, jingles and commercials and stuff. The, the owners had a, a jingle company. Okay. So I would do help out with the engineer on that, you know, from nine o'clock in the morning till five or six at night. And then the doors would, shut and lock up so um at that time too bob rock was uh an up uh, was an assistant and an up-and-coming engineer so at night he'd go and the vancouver punk bands to come in cool. and, and record because they could get you know cheap or free time so i said to bob i said i'll need a hand at night he says sure if you want to hang out so wow. uh so we'd work till you know one two in the morning so i had to be back at work at five i got an hour drive out to home so I thought, ah, I just had a sleeping bag, and I slept in the, the loading bay at the studio for about a year, year and a half. Wow. Lesson learned, kids at home, that if you really want something bad enough, you'll find a way, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so the first time you heard um, ACDC must have been around this time. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, you know, I was in my teens when I first heard them, and we had gone to see Aerosmith concerts. And there's this opening band called ACDC, and we didn't, you know, have any clue what they were. Right. And at that time, ACDC meant you sort of hit either way, you know. And uh, <laughs> so, so we're kind of like, I don't know if we want to go see these guys, but we ended up going to see them, and we're just blown away. So, that, oh, this Aerosmith show is going to be awesome. And they came out, and they're right at their sort of darkest days. Uh, <laughs> they were just drugged and drugged right out, drunk out. You could hardly recognize the songs. And I think we left the concert early, actually, but uh, Ouch. Uh, I went straight to a record store and, and bought up everything I could find with ACDC on it. That's awesome. And then many years later, you know, I didn't really realize it, but many years later, I thought, I wonder what show I saw. And it was uh, the Highway to Hell tour 
Okay, so you saw Bond. Yeah, but I didn't know it and didn't appreciate it. You know, well, I guess I appreciated it, but, uh, you know, I just remember uh, Mal and Ang. I just remember the guitar playing on that. It was just like, what? Yeah. So, so bang on. So when you went to um, buy those ACDC albums after the show, what was your reaction to the production of those 70 albums? Uh, I loved the rawness of it. Yeah. You know, um, it was just, you know, the sounds are kind of in your face and it was raw and just, I mean, it was just the perfect type of music for the the stage I was at in my life. You know, it was just yeah. no balls, rock and roll. And then, you know, and then at that time you'd start getting the, you know, so the beginning of the eighties, uh, you know, bands started wearing makeup and hair and, you know, you got your kiss and all that. Right. And I just really didn't get that. I'd like a band that could go up there with jeans and t-shirt kick your ass you know right so that was sort of where i gravitated to so eventually you get your shot and the first few bands that you ever work with are all from your homeland including rush and Loverboy and brian adams and i was hoping april wine would be in there somewhere i love those guys do you remember those guys oh yeah that was one of my favorite yeah i love those guys I always thought, and I wanted to ask you this, I always thought Brian Adams' Run To You, which is off that same Reckless album that you worked on, sounded a lot like Walk All Over You by ACDC. Did you ever put that together? Uh, oh, okay. I don't, I didn't really get that. Um, now, Run To You, there's a funny story. Brian wrote that for Blue Oyster Cult. Oh. And they didn't want it, so he says, "Ah, I'll put it on my record." So, <laughs> if you listen to that in mind, it's got a little bit of "Don't Fear the Reaper" kind of vibe to it. No kidding. Yeah, I yeah. I always assumed that um, Brian Adams had heard "Walk All Over You" and said, "That's a pretty awesome riff. I'm gonna make it a little bit more poppy." And right. I love both <laughs> songs, but it, you listen to the chords, so um, I just want to know if there was a direct lift there or not. Yeah, no, I'll have to re-listen to that. I've never okay. uh, that never the, occurred to me. So the first artist on your resume back in 1980 was a band called Prism. Tell us why that band has an interesting connection in your timeline through Bruce Fairburn. Well, Prism was a Vancouver band that Bruce was a part of. He uh, was a trumpet player, and in their early incarnations, uh, had a horn section. So. Uh, they decided to do away with that and sort of go more kind of a rock vein. So Bruce was kind of out of a job. So he says, oh, I'll, I'll produce these guys. So uh, for their second record, they came into Little Mountain Sound to work with Bob Rock. And it was one of the first records Bob Rock engineered. And, you know, one of the first ones Bruce had produced. And I assisted on that one. It was called uh, Armageddon. But I was also still doing my janitor stuff. So I wasn't really a full assistant, so I never got a credit on that. Oh, um, man. But it was the first time Bob, Bruce, and I worked together. So the next Prism record was uh, Young and Restless, and all three of us worked on that together. And mm. from that, we jumped into Loverboy, and from Loverboy, Bruce got the the um, Bon Jovi gig, and then Aerosmith, and then, you know, then it just all kind of started snowballing. But, you know, Bob Rock, Bruce Herbert, and I were a team for many years we did a lot of records together it's a great team and so you've got these yeah. great canadian artists in your arsenal now and then the big one hits your desk aerosmith permanent vacation a boston-based band who for the first time in their history are sober in the studio right yeah we started doing that one as as the team you know bruce was producing bob was engineering and uh was assisting and I remember the the first night we had to load in and kind of set set it all up on a Saturday night. Bob and I were kind of on to work on a Saturday night, and then I just remember Stephen and Joe walking in and walking by the control room, uh, and you see them through the glass with their full uh, floor duster coats on, and he said, <laughs> "Well, if you're going to work on Saturday night, <laughs> this is the band to be working on." <laughs> <laughs> so, That's awesome. Yeah. So then. Uh, Bob was in a band at that time called the Paolas. They had, I think, a couple of songs that did okay down the States. Anyways, um, I think the first or second week into a six-week recording, and uh, Bob said to Bruce, oh, uh, we just got booked on a Canada-wide tour for four weeks. He says, I won't be able to finish the record. 
So Bruce says, okay, well, you know, that's unfortunate, but no problem. We'll have Mike just recording it, and then, then we'll look for, for somebody to mix it. So that's what we did. Uh, we finished all the recording of it, and as we we're just about done, Bruce had to go out of town for three days or so. And so I said, well, while I'm gone, can you just do a, a real quick rough mix of all the songs? And then we'll send that out to, you know, potential mixers. I said, okay, sure. So I go in the next day and I'm mixing away on the first song and Stephen and Joe come in and they had a listen and they said, oh, you don't want to do this, do you? And I was like, oh, I know. And then Stephen says, no, I said, you don't want to do this. He says, you want to mix it. He says, go for it. Oh. So I did. So when Bruce got back, we had three songs mixed and he was a little choked that uh, I didn't do rough mixes of all of them. But uh, Stephen and Joe said, oh, well, check it out, check it out. So Bruce listened to the song. I think we found our mixer. So that's awesome. <laughs> that they had nice your back. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was great. Wow. So you were tasked to finding a mixer, and that mixer was you. Yeah. So basically, in one project, I went from being the assistant to the, the mixer on the project. So that was a, a giant door opener. And I also noticed um, that you were credited with playing a plunger mute on that. Yes. Album. What is yeah. that? <laughs> Well, it's basically lip smacks. Okay. So they end up sounding like hand claps, but you know, um, when we're doing all the Aerosmith records, you know, Stephen particularly is was really into more organic, you know, um, percussion stuff. You know, he's yeah. an amazing tambourine and shaker player because he used to be a drummer. But you know, anything we could do organically, he was into. So you know, we we're going, oh, let's put hand claps on this, and he'd do that, and it just sounded a little bit too straight or something you know so he's yeah. oh i got an idea so he's doing it and then i was just goofing around and standing out there with him going you know kind of like that you know and <laughs> he goes, oh, oh yeah here put on a set of headphones you could do them with me so i guess That's i'm a great. guppy plunger now <laughs> wow so you're you're working with bob rock bruce fairburn you're starting to take us by storm in a place called vancouver with half the equipment of places like New York and LA probably, but more determination, yep. which is awesome. So had you ever reached out or tried to reach out to ACDC at that time? Uh, no, I hadn't. Uh, you know, I was happy in my position of, you know, starting my engineering career, you know, transitioning from, from uh, assistant to engineering. And, you know, at that point I'm still, you know, sort of that country boy, working in the big city of Vancouver, which actually is quite a small city yeah. <laughs> compared to the world, you know? Right. And I uh, never thought outside of that. It was like whatever bands came into town to record, oh, great, oh, we're working on these guys today, you know? Uh, so they approached Bruce. Okay. And um, they had recorded their record in Ireland with uh, their brother, George Young. And they just spoke for his recording and something popped up, uh, illness in the family or, or George got ill, I'm not sure what, but he couldn't finish the record. So they had to do the vocals and and lead guitars. So I guess they reached out to Bruce because of Bruce's success with, you know, Bon Jovi and Loverboy and, right. and Aerosmith. Uh, but they reached out to Bruce and said, hey, we just need to finish these vocals, throw some guitars down and mix it. He goes, okay, sure, he'll do it. So they rolled in and one of the first songs we did, uh, putting a vocal on with Brian, and it was in the wrong key for him. It wasn't just in his powerhouse thing. So they had to re-record the guitar and bass to change the key of the song, oh. so he could, uh, you know, sing it in his range. And uh, I guess Mal and Ang like the the sound of those so much better. We re-recorded everything else. So you redid so, the entire Razor's drums. Edge. Yeah, yeah. Except for drums. Drums were done, but we did the bass and guitars again. And, and they were just a lot happier with the sounds. So, so to have uh, Chris Slade laid down those drums already, or were they? Yeah. Were there? Okay. Yeah, it was Chris. And then towards the end of the record, they decided they wanted to do a couple more songs. So, I know we did Mistress to Christmas and so long ago. So we recorded two songs there, and that was with Chris. Okay. So, yeah. Wow. So I had heard a story. This is. 1989 or so, somewhere around there, 1990. So. And, and Stuart Young shows up in Vancouver to meet you 
and, and Bruce, mm-hmm. and, it, and it took a moment for you to realize that this wasn't Stuart Young's song he had brought with him, but it was Malcolm <laughs> Young. <laughs> yeah, I went to answer the door. The doorbell rang. It was on a weekend, so after hours. So I went up front and to the door, and there was Stuart. Stuart was quite a big guy, I'd guess, you know, 6'4", or something like that. Oh, wow. And I thought it was the sun there. And it was, oh, I'm here to see Bruce. So I ushered them <laughs> into the back, and then they started talking, and I realized, oh, that a son that's Malcolm <laughs> and I never realized you know their stature before until you see him in person and then so I went back and looked at album covers and stuff I'm like oh of course yeah. you know the guitars look so big on them of course they're... but you didn't really realize that you know the sound is so big you know yes. think of them as being small guys it's amazing it's amazing yeah they're I mean Angus is what five two something like that yeah um, yeah, and the boys really enjoyed working with you guys then. Yeah, yeah, I guess uh, we made a good impression. Like, you know, the thing with the, with those guys is they're really kind of blue collar guys. Uh, yeah, you know, they're just really normal, down to earth guys, and they like uh, to be surrounded like a family. You know, so even yeah. some of their road crew they've had forever, and you know, I guess that's why I've stuck it out so long. That you know, we're kind of like family, like even. The last bunch of records we did, um, Angus's wife, Ella, would cook dinner for us. So, you know, six o'clock, we go, okay, boys, dinner's ready. And I'll so, okay, put everything down and run into the kitchen to eat. And, you know. That's really nice. So, That's really nice. Yeah. Cool. I, I, there was a, a quote Bruce had said years ago. I don't remember it directly, but it was something like he wanted ACDC to sound like they were 18 years old again. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, that was his goal, you know, to get that yeah. those chants from Dirty Deeds, you know, that whole vibe going of when he remembered listening to ACDC for the first time. So, and to me, yeah. that album was probably and still is the most commercially polished ACDC album. Would you agree? I guess in hindsight, you know, um, I mean, I remember when we when we did Razor's Edge and and in particular Thunderstruck. Uh, Thunderstruck wasn't really one of my favorite songs on there. It, I felt it took too long to get fired up. You know, it just seemed to be this long build. I and, agree. Uh, and uh, but in hindsight, now after years of listening to it, and it's become quite an anthem for them. I really like the song. <laughs> I so, I agree. When I first heard that, I was Mike. I was like, man, this this intro is going on forever. And then eventually it becomes like this incredible anthem that will remain in their live show forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it took a long time to get, you've been thunderstruck. <laughs> you know, and it took a I while to you, get there. You told this great story that I'd heard. Um, I was wondering if you could delve back into it. Um, Somebody said, maybe it was Bruce, we need an intro for Thunderstruck. And Angus said, well, I do this little finger tapping exercise. And mm-hmm. you said, okay, let's roll the tape. And then what happened? Yeah, well, you know, like you said, we needed an intro. And, and Angus says, oh, I've got something I've been working on. He says, uh, let me go. So we rolled the tape. Angus sat in his stool and lit a cigarette, put it in his mouth, and started his little spiely thing there. And and so it goes through the intro and into this the first verse and Bruce and I kind of look at each other and Bruce sort of motions me, you know, keep rolling, keep rolling the tape. So, uh, went all the way through the verse, all the way through the chorus, all the, and all the way through the whole song, you just played it (laughs) right to the very end. And then, uh, so we stopped tape and Angus said to Bruce, well, how's that? And he had this ash, his whole cigarette was one long ash hanging out of his mouth. (laughs) And we said, oh, it was great. It was awesome. Like he just played it, you know, first take. So we said, okay, well, let's try another, see if we beat that, but it never even got close to, to beating it. And it was, that was the take. So when you listen to the song now, it's through the whole song, but in the mix, we just kind of duck it in and out. But uh, it was one take, one wow. first time. It was awesome. No loops. No loops, nothing. No, no punch-ins, no fix-ups. That's just exactly how he played it. Pure magic. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, um, jumping from 
Razor's Edge. I remember when I first heard ACDC's one-off single, Big Gun, by, uh, produced by Rick Rubin. I was pretty excited because I thought to myself, he did it. He, he's a fan of the band, and he knew how to capture everything I love about these guys. The sound, yeah. the energy, the hook, the tempo. Very cool song. And then ACDC hired Rick to produce their next full-length LP, Ball Breaker. And when I yeah. first heard Ball Breaker... I felt like I was in the room with ACDC. It sounded, you know, it had this dry, tight sound, but it sounded really good. Kudos to you for that. But um, it's no secret that his producing style did not go over so well with um, ACDC, particularly Mal. I wanted to lay down a theory here for you, see if you, what you think about it. Let me rewind here. So while Rick and the band were waiting for you, you were finishing up a Van Halen album out in LA, right? Yeah, it was something like that, yeah. Okay. And they were working on getting a drum sound in New York. And now here's the return of this human metronome by the name of Phil Rudd. He had been out of the band. He's finally back. And they're working in New York. And there's a lot of pressure to get the drum sound right. And they're just not finding it, right? Yeah. So then after six weeks, you guys decide to go to L.A. Yeah. But to make matters worse... Rick isn't showing up very much at the studio and he's kind of on his own schedule. And once you finally get there, the band's in the studio all day and they're waiting for Rick and, and you're, you're suggesting, why don't we just lay down some takes? Right. And, and the band says, now we'll wait for Rick. Right. Right. If I, am I getting this right so far? Yeah. Yeah. It's mostly right. So they're in New York trying to get the sound. They're, Rick and the band all wanted this really dry in your face sound. And whoever had picked the studio was the wrong studio. It was a place called the power station, which is a great studio, but it, it's room is known for its ambience. It's big sound. Um, so we spent six weeks there trying to get the sound right. We had burlap sacks in uh, covered every spot of the, in the room, which was like a big kind of, a dome-shaped room, so almost like a round ceiling and, and wood everywhere. And we spent weeks trying to, you know, treat it so it wasn't so live. And finally, we just kind of gave up. We said, "Okay, we gotta, we gotta go to to L.A." And uh, you know, by that time, you know, Rick wasn't coming in until later that night. We'd show up at eleven in the morning, and Rick would kind of roll in about eight or nine at night. <laughs> and we just sat around all day, kind of. So. Uh, that's when I said to the band, hey, look, let's just, you know, throw some tracks down and, you know, Rick can check it out when he gets in. And I said, no, we've got a producer. We're paying him to be here. So we're not playing until he's here, just in wow. case there's some magic or some quick direction and then we can nail it or whatever. You know, they didn't want to waste time. So, uh, yeah, it was six weeks in New York for nothing. And then we came oh. to L.A. and, and got her done. <laughs> But that was a tough record to make just because these guys, when they come in, like they don't even rehearse the songs. They like it always fresh. Right. So having already sort of done the record once, moved cities, and now we had to do it again, it was it was really hard to keep the vibe up and the energy going, you know. It was, it was kind of like... I was going to say, that it, this is insane to me because here's a guy who gets the gig of a lifetime. He's making a record with his heroes. He's making them sit around all day. And the, I know this is kind of his MO, um, and he gets great stuff out of people, but do you think Rick was intimidated with anxiety about the pressure of pulling off a successful ACDC record with his heroes? I'm not sure that was even the case. You know, Rick was a really nice guy, and when he was there, everything was fine. The vibes were fine. It's just uh, he was rarely there. and I mean, I believe that's why we had picked New York, to uh, to do the record because li- Rick lived in L.A. and they wanted him sort of away from any distractions. But uh, you know what happened? <laughs> Why? And I was surprised because you know Rick, you know, uh, had a lot of you know records he was trying to make sound like ACDC. So when I heard that Rick was producing, I thought, oh, this is going to be the perfect match. Right. This is going to be great. Right. And, yeah. Didn't I heard really he happen. actually asked the band to leave the control room once because he had to meditate. Well, yeah, in New York, when he'd show up at like six or seven, he'd order food, 
when that arrived, he'd take it into the control room to eat it, and then he had to meditate for like an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> He'll be just still sitting there like all day, and then now we got to wait. Rick's locked in the control room. Well, and Malcolm yeah, is right like, beside him, folded, yeah, crossed yeah. arms. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, the, the good news is that ACDC credited you with not only sound engineer and mixer, but also co-producer, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Very cool. You... You at least earned that after having to deal with all that. <laughs> well, it was the, the little extra work I had to put in there to keep things oh rolling and everybody sane. They said, uh, they said uh, we'll give you that credit. So the band don't really need a producer. They just want somebody they can bounce stuff off and, sure. and keep on point, you know. I saw um, Rick at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when ACDC was inducted, and he looked pretty happy to be a part of their history. But And, and I don't mean to talk smack about Rick because I – I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of his production work. So, yeah, yeah. But um, describe meeting Phil for the first time, rejoining the band after being away for so long. It's definitely a thrill to meet Phil because <laughs> you know he is the, the the heartbeat of the band. You know, um, Chris is an amazing drummer, but you know when you listen to the the ACDC records that Phil's on, you can't deny that it it gels into a different thing when he's when he's smacking it down and Phil's a, uh, he just smacks his drums too. Like he, he's actually pretty hard to, to get a good sound on because he hits everything so hard. Like he wears the skins out really fast. That's Sometimes amazing. you've got to change the snare halfway through the song. And, uh, but you know, I guess it makes you work harder. It's like kind of recording a Brahma bull, if you will. <laughs> You're just kind of hanging on until you got the song down that makes you work harder. And I guess, you know, the sounds end up being better. You don't get relaxed on right. it. You're always on your toes. So, uh, and, you know, he's a sweetheart of a guy, really kind of unassuming. And, right. you know, uh, like Angus, he's always got a cigarette in his mouth when he's playing. And I don't know how he can do that, you know, like with, with a drummer and, you know, you got to breathe pretty heavy. Breathe. It's like, I don't know how I can have a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> but, he oh, does it live, too. It's crazy. Yeah, I know. He's got his tech there lighting the smokes for him, passing the smoke because he's playing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite memory from a, a song off that album? You know, not really, because like I said, that was a hard record to make. Uh, yeah. And it was all good and fine, but, you know, I don't really have a... I guess the favorite memory was when we finally had it mixed and done, and we're like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> I was kind of a big fan of Boogeyman just because it was so different for them. It's, it almost felt like Johnny, Johnny Lee Hooker or something. It was really cool. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we mentioned you traveling to New York and L.A., and so although you're based in Canada, you're basically a nomad, right? You have to travel wherever. Yeah, well, for sure. Uh, through a lot of the 90s and into the 2000s, I, I think I was on the road nine months at a, and home three. Oh, that's so, rough. Yeah. Yeah, a lot That's of traveling. Right. But, you know, not all at once. You'd go away for six weeks and home for a week and then away for three weeks and home for two weeks. You know, it was spread out, but still. Um, yeah, got pretty tired of hotel rooms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Uh, tell us a quick yeah. history of Brian Adams' warehouse studio in Vancouver. A ACDC record there more than anywhere ever in their history, right? Well, when Little Mountain kind of got sold and it uh, sort of went under... I think it was around 92, sort of the vibe of the studio and it, you know, was, was everybody that worked there. And so that kind of dissipated and Brian had his own setup in his house uh, in North Vancouver in the basement of his house. But, you know, it was always a pain sometimes when outside bands would want to come and use it because, uh, you know, now you got a band living downstairs in, in, in your house, you know, so. Right. He moved it to a little warehouse in North Vancouver, this industrial area, and that was okay. But again, you know, uh, we couldn't do loud music during the day because of the other tenants, you know, beside him and stuff. So we could only record at night. So Brian was uh, is a huge supporter of, you know, the historic stuff in Vancouver. So he had bought this old building, which is one of the the oldest buildings in Vancouver. I think it's. Uh, 
one out of four or five that survived a big fire there in the late 1800s. So uh, he had bought this building and was just kind of sitting on it. So he decided, hey, I'm going to convert this into a, a studio. So that's what he did. He spent, you know, millions on it because it's an old brick building. And, you know, we're in an earthquake zone here. So it had oh. to be retrofitted for earthquake stuff. So he spent, I think, $2 million on stuff you don't even see. But wow. just to make it that's painful. safer in an earthquake. And then he, you know, finished and put in, a, well, there's a tracking room, a mix room, and then... Uh, another little thing so basically three studios in there so he spent a lot of money on it and that sort of became the next or the newest little mountain sound kind of thing and all the all the big rock bands would go there <laughs> so is is that your is that where your favorite board to work on is that well i've got another studio here that uh bruce fairburn had bought called the armory studios and that's got uh, the exact same mixing board i use over at the warehouse uh it's an ssl Oh, nice. um, and um, so I work at either I jump back and forth between the, the two of them okay. um, the armory's got a really nice tracking room as well which sounds great the warehouse tracking room is a little bigger right uh, so it's just down to sort of preferences you know the warehouse is right in a place called gas town which is the old end of town so it's kind of cool when the band's there working and and it, you know, it's not their turn to be recording. They can wander around all the tour shops and stuff. That's great. Whereas Yarmory is is a little bit outside the city. You know, it's a five, ten minute cab ride, but there's right. not a lot to do around the Armory. So you're kind of hanging out at the studio, which isn't really a problem, but it's just preference, you know. Yeah, I heard, um, I guess it's a good segue into the next LP for ACDC, Stiff Upper Lip, when... You got to work with George Young for the first time. He had actually fell in love with Vancouver and wanted to move there. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, he just loved the, his whole stay there. Uh, I believe his wife was out as well, and they hung out. And they were, I think, he actually even on days off or in between, they'd be out running around, you know, looking at properties and and houses and stuff. And then they had gone back to, and I don't think he was living in Australia at the time. Of, I think it was somewhere in Europe, maybe he was living okay. and with all intentions of coming back out this way, but uh just never happened. <laughs> so for Stiff Upper Lip, the boys wanted to go back to Bruce Fairburn, but sadly he passed away prematurely at the age of what, forty nine, fifty years old. Um yeah, yeah. and they, they lured brother George back into the studio out of retirement. You must have must have been bittersweet for you, um, you know, sad about Bruce, but wow. This is a you know one of the producers you grew up listening to. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, on that record too, uh, it was their first time coming back to Vancouver to record. So also, you know, Bruce had just died, and Little Mountain had was gone too. So Malcolm and Angus and George all flew into Vancouver to come and and look at the warehouse and just make sure they're going to be able to get the sounds they were looking for um, in the new studio. So. Uh, as it would have it, the day they flew in was Bruce's funeral. So they all came to the, uh, well, Mal and Ann came to the funeral with me. And then we went straight to the studio and just recorded a couple little little things. George played drums just to, you know, just throw up a couple of mics just to see if, huh. you know, it was going to work out cool. or not. And, and uh, yeah, they loved it. Did uh, Angus and Mal wear jeans and T-shirts to the funeral? Oh yeah. Oh well, no. Actually, you know what? They both had their had brought their. Uh, I guess maybe when they travel, they wear their um, blazer. You know their suit they had jacket. A blazer with them. Know, over, okay. Over the jeans and t-shirts. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. So the three brothers are jamming in front of you. How amazing! Yeah, yeah. What a what a thrill to meet George too. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about George. I've become a fan of. Uh, all the early records and uh, and I had even gone and checked out some of the easy beat stuff and some of that stuff was great you know so it was really a thrill to meet him and and again he's he's uh, such a sweetheart such a nice man what did you learn from George well uh George's big thing with these guys was fairly hands-off uh he would definitely jump in with his opinions uh, they would ask him his opinion a lot when we'd finish a take. 
um, because they're kind of going for something a little different on that record. They want it to be a little bit more bluesy and not as uh, hard rock, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what they were kind of going for. Um, So I guess, you know, they wanted George's input of, you know, does that sound okay? Is that too this? Or as any brothers, you know, Mal and Ang would occasionally have differences. And sometimes you'd have to sort of leave the room. It got very heated. <laughs> so George was great at when the differences went on for a little while. You know, they'd be in the room for an hour yelling at each other or whatever. Wow. And George would be the big brother and walk in and, okay, you guys, that's enough. Off that's to your room. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? Well, so, you get to uh, see the family fighting. <laughs> the family feud. But it was always over probably nothing and it always got resolved and there was never any, uh, you know, lingering bad vibes or feeling like they just had to get something off their chest at each other. And sometimes it came out as yelling, you know, so. Right. Did, um, did George use his tried and true ACDC song test by playing everything on the piano first? You know what? There's a couple of ones. I remember them working out probably key, you know, different keys or something. Uh, but yeah, a little bit, but not not usually. They had it pretty. They kind of knew what they were doing when they when they showed up at the studio. So yeah, there wasn't like a lot of writing or changing things in the studio. It was just capturing the right vibe. Why well, know uh, Harry Vanda? I, I'm not sure I know that story because they were partners forever. Yeah, yeah. I don't know much about Harry other than you know they had worked uh, on all the early stuff. Yeah, uh, I believe. Wasn't Harry, didn't Harry have something to do with the Easy Beats as well? Or Yeah, they like, were both you know, in the band together, and then they both yeah. produced every ACDC album up until, you know, the latter days. So I, I just didn't know why it was just George, if the, if you knew the story behind that or no. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Uh, you know, when George retired, maybe Harry did, and then, you know, the brothers uh, convinced him to pull out of retirement, and I know that took a bit of convincing. He really yep. didn't want to. You know? Yep. But he, I guess he thought, ah, it's my kid brothers. And, yeah. I got to yeah. I gotta get in between Angus and Mal so they don't beat each other <laughs> right. up. Yeah. So Brian he said it was that. the most fun he's ever had in the studio. Would you concur with that? Yeah, that was. It was a, a fun record, again, probably because it was a little different than their norm. But, you know, yeah. even when they do it different, it's not too far off where it's like, whoa, that doesn't even sound like ACDC. You know, it's still definitely an ACDC record. It's just a little different from where they had always sort of been you know yeah so that kind of made it a little funner you know it's a little yeah. different and hey something a little different uh brian was singing really good on that record so that's why he had fun <laughs> right i think yeah. um hold me back is one of my favorites off of that So does each member fly in their own gear to the studio, you know, amps and heads and instruments and all that stuff? Well, all their gear, they've got, you know, probably a couple of big warehouses around the world. Okay. Uh, so all their, all their gear stays there. Uh, imagine all their live stuff, you know, props and PAs and all that kind of stuff are in a, another room. But, you know, I know they've got big things. So they all throw it into a shipping container. And yep. and freight it over on a on a boat, and then the trucks pick it up at the harbor and bring it into the studio. So the bands would walk in with you know the, their personal guitars and bass, and I guess uh, fill with a bag of drumsticks or something. So you know they don't <laughs> they don't cart their own gear around, but just their personal stuff. They yeah they'll bring in. Now, I always love about your work is that there's not a lot of effects or overdubs, and there's like minimal doubling. It just sounds really what you want it to sound like. And I have this vision mm-hmm. of you using like only six or 10 tracks per song, which I know cannot be true, but what, what's an average amount of yeah. tracks you use per song for ACDC? Well, when I'm, when I'm recording and especially with ACDC, cause like we don't double guitars or any of that stuff. So with ACDC, it's, you know, less than 48 tracks for sure. Okay. Um, which for rock is a lot because, you know, when I first started the studio, it was a 16-track analog, and then we got in a 24-track analog, and then towards somewhere in the 80s, uh, the technology allowed you to lock together, you know, synchronize 
two 24 tracks. He had, you know, 48 tracks, but really he only had 46 because he had to uh, designate two, uh, a track on each of the machine for this thing called SIMPTY, which is a, a sync code that this machine would read and synchronize the tapes together. So, you know, you just did all your stuff on 40 tracks if you could, you know, and that's sort of how we grew up. So now that you got Pro Tools and you can have virtually as many tracks as your computer can handle, you know, yeah. hundreds. Wow. Uh, I still kind of keep it to the the 40, 48 kind of kind of tracks if I can. It just makes mix it easier at the end too. Right. And they, they're all wearing headphones and is it all live or do they have to separate out? No, it's all live. Every record I've done with them has been live. Uh, there's been some records, like uh, the ones at the warehouse, they're, they all wear headphones and they've each got their own little headphone mixing station. So they'll have, I think there's 16 channels we can send them. So they'll have separate um, levels on each instrument that they can sort of set up their own mix. And then that doesn't get touched, you know, so they they're they get the same thing every time uh when we worked in la uh because there was an older board and you couldn't get sort of separate headphone sends we put them all in a in a back drum booth and we put up a stack of ns10 speakers so i think there's four aside nice. and then we put the sub mix out through that so they didn't have to wear headphones it was like they were just playing in a band and we had to seal that all off because the drums was in the big live room, you know, so we had to keep all that from leaking into the drums and that, but uh, we call it the sweat box because, <laughs> you know, they'd go in there for half an hour with the doors closed and we'd have to turn the AC off because the AC, when it gets going too much, makes the guitars cold, which makes the strings stretch and then they go out of tune. It's really hard to keep a guitar in tune, you know, when it's right. uh, in the AC, so... Yeah, it would just they would just be dripping with sweat and <laughs> we finally finish the take and we'd open the doors and, and then all the smoke would come out because they'd be in there smoking and Oh god. Sweating and so that was kind of fun, but um you know, that's one way of doing it. It's just hard to do it that way and keep separation, you know. But right. uh you know, like when a band's playing live and that's you know, what A C D C does best. Right. That's how they're used to hearing things, you know, in headphones sometimes you know, you can't, especially with bass and sort of low end stuff, the headphones don't reproduce that as well as you would hear acoustically, you know? So, right. you know, it's always hard to get the vibe going through headphones. And do you mix the same way every time? Like you, you lay down Phil or, or Chris's stuff or, and then you put on, let's say Brian next and then the guitars next, or do you mix it up? I, I guess I have a, a routine. Uh, I do it on with everything you know um whether i've recorded or not and especially if i haven't recorded i don't know the song i'll just sort of push all the faders up the board and get like a really rough blend and kind of let the song play through a few times and just sort of figure out where the song wants to go and then uh then i'll turn things off you know get the drums punching the way i want and start adding bass and guitars i usually add the vocals in last yeah. on uh, rock stuff you know uh and you know, sometimes me and my assistants always laugh. It's like you get it down the whole song is just sounding great, and then you turn the vocal on, and then it's like, oh, now I got to tuck the guitars back, and make room for the vocal. <laughs> now the drums have got to come back. So it's so almost like, oh, that vocal ruined the song again. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Brian. Yeah, but funny enough, you know, like if you're doing country stuff, I do it kind of the other way around you know sort of quickly get the drums and that up there then i work on the vocals and then i wrap the, the band around that because yeah it's just a different vibe you know we speaking of country we had talked with uh big and rich uh they're always looking yep. they were looking for that acdc sound uh uh with their records did they come to you specifically for that i can't remember actually uh i was in nashville doing something at the time and um uh, as so much happens in in a lot of those music towns, you know, in LA and Nashville, especially when you're in town, you bump into somebody in the hallway or at a restaurant. It's oh, hey, can I get you to mix that tomorrow or whatever? Right. So that, I think right. it's kind of how it happened. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think my management had possibly reached out to them too, but uh, uh, I don't think they came to me 
directly at first. But. Okay. So there, there was this long gap between albums with Black Ice, and rightfully so. ACDC had been at it for years. They're enjoying playing some live shows with the Stones, and they get inducted mm-hmm. in the Hall of Fame, taking some time with their families probably. But once they head back into the studio with you, you start to notice something different about Mal. Can you describe yeah. that to us? Yeah, Mal is is the solid rock of the band. He's the, you know, his rhythm playing is second to none. He sets the tempos and all that. And, uh, you know, though him and Angus are, are both sort of equal partners, I guess because Mal was older, Ang would kind of always look to Mal's opinion and sort of Mal was kind of the director, you know. Uh, so when we started that record, Mal was there, but we'd be doing takes and all of a sudden, oh, oh something happened. Oh, oh. Mal said, oh, shoot, sorry, I forgot that we, we go to the chorus there. Okay, let's do it again. And that used to happen a little bit more frequently during the, the course of the, the records. We're like, you know, something's not right here. Right. That was kind of the first initial warnings of it. And then uh, by the time we finished the record, uh, Brian was, uh, was quite concerned. So uh, I know when they went home, Brian had them fly out to to um florida to some you know uh brain specialist or something really uh in the states there and had them looked at and but then you know then once you know i'm done with the band i don't you know i kind of stay in touch with them but you know i didn't hear anything more of what came of it and what where he ended up and all that i just know you know they said he had alzheimer's and the beginning stages of and and then when i met up with them when they played Vancouver when they were touring that record Mal comes up to me and goes oh Mike he says, oh yeah no he says, I'm doing way better he says they got me on some pills that's totally helping this, this problem I've been having and oh yeah he says I'm back what I knew until you know I guess it degenerates fairly fast so yeah. what a gamer though he just kept going and going and going until he couldn't yep yep so, and that's where Angus has picked up the torch and did you ever get emotional in the studio working on ACDC well I usually always get emotional when I'm mixing I just get so wrapped up in the song sometimes just you know, sometimes I'll well up when I'm doing moves or something just because it's just, uh, I don't know, I just get into it. Um, yeah. The rock or bust had a few moments, just we we're all really missing Mal, you know? Right, right. The big hole and uh, their cousin or nephew or whatever, Stevie Young, came in and, and filled in, uh, but he had pretty big shoes to fill and he did a, a fantastic job, but, you know, there's just no replacing Mal. Yeah, that's that was must have been a very emotional recording. You've got, like you mentioned, Mal's gone, uh, Brian's hearing is going, Cliff's getting battle worn, and Phil Phil's just not showing up in the studio, is he? Well, it was. It took a while to get Phil to even come into Vancouver, and we weren't even sure what was going to happen. Uh, you know, everybody showed up, and I think we had to wait a week or something before Phil showed up, and. I don't know if it was a contract dispute or what was going on. You know, that's all behind the scenes from me. But, uh, you know, finally got him there and, and got his got his parts done. But, you know, you could tell that, you know, Phil was battling his, his demons. Yeah, it wasn't the same Phil when he showed up, was it? No, no, yeah. no. Played played great, but of he course. wasn't the same guy. Yeah, yeah, this wasn't the same guy at all. And usually Malcolm and Cliff do the backing vocals. So who took over from Mal? Was it Angus? Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because wow. uh, maybe it's their stature or something, but they've got distinctive voices. You know, I've kind of got a, a thing to it. <laughs> right. And all their background vocals, you can hear that. So that's part of their sound. Like, you know, you just can't hire. And Brendan sings quite well. So sometimes he'd pop in there with, with Cliff's a good singer. So yeah. he'd pop in there, but you needed that that gravelly, rough voice yeah. to do it. And you know, we didn't never had Brian singing backgrounds because he's got such a distinctive voice and so loud that it right. would sound like Brian doubling himself. So it, it doesn't work. And was Stevie using Mal's equipment? 
Yep. Yep. Wow. Amp and, and guitar. And, yeah. Yep. Wow. By the way, and I, I, I don't want to keep you too long, um, for the fans out there listening, I also wanted to give accolades to you, Mike, for not just these five consecutive ACDC albums, but listen to this. You have assisted and worked on ACDC Live, No Bull, Plug Me In, Stip Up For Lip DVD, The Rock Band Video Game, Backtracks, Private Parts Soundtrack, Iron Man 2 soundtrack, live at River Plate, and remastering the entire ACDC iTunes catalog. So essentially, if ACDC yeah. is, is involved, Mike Fraser's name is on it. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's funny. Like, uh, you look in all credits. Uh, sometimes you know, I'm credited with engineering, you know, some of their older, older stuff or Highway to Hell. I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> but I guess that's the credit off of uh, the remastering or something. Right. <laughs> hey, you'll take it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Rock or Bust hits, goes live, and as they hit the road, the wheels kind of do come off a little bit, especially for Brian. And he's <laughs> expressing concerns in the studio. Was he expressing them to you? You know, none of them were getting any younger. Uh, and I know on a bunch of the records, uh, just because the way Brian sings, and then especially when he's uh, live, you know, I don't know how many miles he runs a night on those big stages right. and screaming at the top of his range and all that for three hours, it just takes a physical toll on you. You know, your, your, your lungs, your stomach, your throat, your, your head, you know? So the last bunch of records, you know, Brian had always come in, you know, eager to get the record done, but he's oh, he says, I hate when the records are done. He says, cause then that means we've got to hit the road again. So yeah, he loved being on the road and, and, and singing to the fans and all that, but it was just such a, a long toll to take that, you know, every record says, oh, this is my last one. I'm not doing any more after this. And then, you know, the next record, oh, hey, Brian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think that was just something that was coming. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure what the vibe was like out on the road, but I'm sure it wasn't as, as up and happy as when Mal was there, you know, sure. so I think that was yeah. part of it. Uh, and I think, you know, with uh, his ear infection or whatever was happening when the doctor said, look, you're going to, if you keep doing this, you're going to completely lose your hearing. That was enough for Brian. Sure. Says, okay. I'm done. <laughs> the, what's the proudest you've been on, on an ACDC song? Well, I guess, you know, really uh, in hindsight, it's thunderstruck just because it's, you know, it's one of their anthem songs now. So, right. you know, it's right up with Highway to Hell and Back in Black and and uh, shook me. And so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. My buddy Greg and I went to the last show ever in at this point in Philly with Axel yep. uh, in place of Brian. And that was actually my 25th show of seeing mm -hmm. ACDC live. And I'm not bragging because I know there are some fans that see them 25 times on one tour but yeah. um, I was actually at the um, Wrigley Field show, um, and I saw oh, right camera crews going on. So I was yeah. wondering if you uh, had that project cross your desk yet. Uh, not going to comment on that one. <laughs> oh, that's exciting! That's exciting. Well, well I, I was hoping yeah. it would something would happen because I was there. Yeah. Well, there's certain things that uh, with these guys that uh, you got to kind of not talk about till they talk about it. So I'll well, leave that one to them. That's a great segue mm -hmm. for the next question, then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I don't so know anything. I know you that. don't. I know. Well, we all heard what D. Snyder's been leaking uh, on the yeah. internet, but no. um, we saw photos of you with the band in Vancouver recording, which is awesome, with their favorite guy, Mike Frazier. Given that, what ACDC soundbite about these sessions can you exclusively give ACDC Beyond the Thunder? that you haven't told anybody else that you feel comfortable sharing? <laughs> well. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. 
ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast, all rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Shazbot. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.